Well, good morning again, and welcome to St. Paul's. We are very glad that you are here. As I begin, I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us this morning. We pray that you send your spirit upon us, that you drown us in it, that all that we know and hear and all that is spoken might reveal to us the face of your Son, Jesus Christ, our crucified Lord, and we ask it in his name. Amen. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called, to the place, called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, one with, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. These things occurred, Scripture says, so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. They will look on the one whom they have pierced. The crucifixion of Jesus was a spectacle. There are plenty of dreadful ways to kill someone in private, but the crucifixion was a show something to watch. They took him out to a place called the Skull. They probably called it that because that's where they killed people. And the place called the Skull was next to the road into the city so that everybody could see. That's why they killed people there. They wanted people to see. What do you see when you look at the cross? Pontius Pilate, the governor of Jerusalem, who sent Jesus to die, he made it very clear what the cross was supposed to mean. He hung a sign on it that said so. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In three languages, the local dialect, Aramaic, Greek, the regional trade language, and the Latin of the imperial capital. And he meant it as an insult to the whole Jewish people, like, here's your king. Because the thing about the cross was, it was humiliating. The fact that the cross was about shame can be really hard for us to register today. We're 2,000 years removed from the practice of crucifixion, and time and familiarity have tidied it up for us. Crosses are jewelry, decoration. They are canvases for inspirational messages and whatever pretty picture you might want to put on it. But in Jesus' day, the death on the cross was an unspeakable terror. It was seen as a uniquely vile death. Crucifixion was well known, but it was considered distasteful even to talk about it. Like there are plenty of awful things that we're all aware about in our culture, but it would be impolite, even obscene, to bring them up at coffee hour, say. That's what the cross was. There wasn't a standard procedure for doing it. Because of Christian art, we tend to picture a vertical pole with a little crossbar halfway down. But crosses could be shaped like a capital T or a Y or an X. They could just be a pole. People were crucified head up and head down with ropes or nails or both. The ancient Greeks just nailed people to boards. The Roman statesman Cicero called the cross the most, horrible and cruel, the most cruel and horrible penalty 
but it wasn't the most extreme because it hurt the most, though I guess you could make a case. The pain's mostly what we focus on today in our pain-averse society, that the cross hurt and that Jesus was willing to be hurt for us. But in Jesus' day, physical pain was a regular companion of almost everyone. No Tylenol, no general anesthetic. People lived with pain in ways that we can't even conceive of. I'm not saying Jesus' suffering was insignificant. What I'm saying is that the physical agony of the cross was just one ingredient in an overall recipe of humiliation. What made crucifixion crucifixion was that it was death by suspension. Death by suspension. That was the perversity of the cross. No matter what shape the cross took, death by suspension combined three elements. Gravity, time, and visibility. Gravity, it was a death where your own body weight killed you in the end. Time, it wasn't an instant. It could take hours or even days for your lungs or your heart to give way. And visibility, people watched it happen. Nobody got crucified in private. That was the point. The watching was the point. Crucifixion was the most extreme penalty because it made a person into a thing while they died. Crucifixion turned a him into an it. Jesus went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull. That was the thing about the cross. It was a spectacle of dying. We're all dying, of course. To be alive is to be moving toward the grave, but you don't say someone's dying like actively dying until you can see what's going to kill them. A terminal diagnosis, a fatal wound. And the cross took that moment where you know how the story ends, but not exactly when, and it stretched it out in public. It's snuff theater. About four decades after Jesus, some Jewish refugees got captured trying to uh, escape the besieged city of Jerusalem. And the Roman general Titus let his troops blow off steam by crucifying the captives in front of the city walls. He thought the site might get the city to surrender. They crucified 500 people a day. They ran out of crosses for people, and they ran out of room for crosses along the road. It turned into a frenzy. The soldiers just nailing people to wood in whatever poses they could imagine, like kids torturing Barbies. The death on the cross turned men and women into objects. Except objects isn't quite right. Crucifixion turned people into signs. There's the essence. It took living people, unique souls with minds and wills and personalities that never had been before and we will never see again, and nailed them to wood. And that's where their stories ended. It made them billboards. Because to be crucified was to be hung up like a picture on the wall. And the message of the sign was, this is dirt. This is meat. This is not a life. This is garbage. This is not a person. Look what we can do. 
And the deeper message of that sign was, cry all you want because heaven is empty and nobody's coming to take you down. That's why Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. It was a punishment reserved entirely for the lower class and most especially slaves. It was known as the slave's death, in fact. The special punishment for somebody whose body already belonged to somebody else. This, this slave, this no person, this not life, this meat, this garbage, this dirt, this is the king of the Jews, Pilate wrote. In three languages, so everybody who saw would know. That's the spectacle Pilate intended. That's the show he put on. That's the sign he wrote. That's what he wanted us to see. John, the most beloved student of Jesus, who wrote the gospel, the biographical account that we just read together, John agrees. His teacher's cross was a spectacle of dying and shame. Now, John doesn't go into what it's like to be crucified or go into the gory specifics of how it happened, every bloody detail, because the people who heard the gospel knew that already. He's talking to an audience that knew crucifixion like you and I know pop-up ads. They walked past crosses on their daily commute. They knew how obscene it was. And John is saying, you know this horrible, despicable thing, this thing that we all know about but don't talk about, that happened to Jesus. Over the course of Lent, we've been preaching on Old Testament stories that foreshadow the cross. We've preached Good Friday, in a sense, five times, five different ways, and all of those stories converge at the cross. And those stories help us understand what the cross means and what happened there. But at the end, we can't look through the cross. We can't look past the cross just to say what it means. Because what the cross was is what it means. What the cross was is what it means. Yes, something glorious happened there the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. But the glory of what happened doesn't change that the cross was hideous and shameful and horrible beyond description. The salvation that was won there happened because the cross was hideous and shameful and horrible beyond description. And John wants us to know it. John doesn't dwell on how Jesus felt. What he wants us to know is what happened to Jesus. That he was made to carry his own cross. That he was sacrificed between two others and in front of his loved ones. That he ensured his mother would be cared for. And a critical detail that we often overlook, because it's not in any of our art, that Jesus was naked. Jesus was naked on the cross. And how do we know? Because John tells us the soldiers gambled for his clothes after they crucified him, including his tunic, his undergarment. They stripped him completely. Scripture tells us that when God made our first parents, they were naked and not ashamed. But when they sinned, literally the first thing they did 
was cover themselves up. Make garments to hide themselves. And we all cover ourselves, don't we? To greater and lesser degrees, yes, but as we choose. We decide what parts of ourselves other people see. And to take that away from a person, to expose someone against their will, is a fundamental violation. And this happened to Jesus. They exposed Jesus. His hands nailed wide so there was nothing he could do to cover himself. They did it to Jesus in the sight of his loved ones. They did it in front of his mom. John wants us to know that the soldiers stripped Jesus entirely. And the people who loved Jesus the most, his mother, his aunt, his friend Mary, the beloved disciple John, they stayed near. The sheer meanness of it. Think about the cruelty of this. Because paintings of the cross often show Jesus high in the air, well above the onlookers who are beneath his feet, kind of at a distance, like a billboard. But the standard Roman cross, the low cross, only lifted the condemned a foot off the ground. And the high cross, which amplified the disgrace, lifted them three feet off the ground. And it seems from the detail in our passage of the sponge on a stick that that was probably the height Jesus was at. So this is the mind-shattering cruelty of the cross. Imagine yourself there, your beloved, nailed to a pole, naked, three feet off the ground, which is to say their waist at eye level. And you're there. Of course you're there. You're not going to leave them to die alone, but it could take hours. It could take days. How do you pass that time? Where do you look? You don't want to violate him further with your gaze, but are you going to look away from him? You see others looking, just passing by. Their world's not ending. Just commuters glancing at a billboard, raking your beloved with mean, mean eyes. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't look away, and you can't look. Well, it's a fact that Christians have always had trouble looking at the cross. It's that horrifying. Think about how the crucifixion has been painted and sculpted. The Jesus we know from images is stripped, yes, but almost always with a loincloth guarding his most basic privacy. But that's not how it happened. And what that means is that the literal truth of the cross, this thing that we say our salvation depends upon, the literal truth of the cross as it happened is so obscene that Christians have had to edit it and clean it up and censor it and sanitize it in order simply to picture it for 2,000 years. But a sanitized cross is not a saving cross because it's precisely the obscenity of the cross that saves us. Does that shock you to hear? Because it shocks me to say the obscenity of the cross is a human being made in the image of God rendered into an object for display. It is a pornography of violence instead of sex. 
And the reason that this porn saves us, the reason this pornography is gospel, which is to say good news, and I mean good news for you and me, is because of who is on display. Because the person hanging on the cross in John 19 is not just another nameless man among the countless victims of history. No, the person humiliated in this way, the person made into a not person, the person made into garbage, meat, dirt, the person rendered obscene is the word of God made flesh. The gospel author John, he knows that everything turns on the question of who Jesus is. His gospel begins with Jesus' mistaken identity as the world's most basic problem. Chapter 1, verse 10, the Son of God was in the world, but the world didn't know him, didn't recognize who he was. And so for the entire first half of the gospel leading up to the story we heard, John is showing us the signs of power that Jesus did that prove who he was, changing water into wine and uh, walking on water, feeding thousands, healings, bringing the dead to life. And John shows us these signs so that we'll have no doubt that Jesus is God in flesh. And we need to know this. We need to be sure of this or else we will not be able to understand his last and greatest sign, which is the sign he makes of himself on the cross. We won't understand it because on the face of it, there's nothing miraculous about the cross. It's not that hard to die. People do it all the time. But when you know who it is that's dying there, then you realize you're seeing a miracle so profound it makes walking on water look like a parlor trick. Because all the other signs pointed to Jesus' divinity by showing his mastery over the material world. The control of a creator over his creation. Of course the God who made water can walk on it or turn it into wine. Of course the God who made bodies can heal them and even give them life. But John shows us these signs of control precisely so that when we get to the cross, we will believe the unbelievable sign of divine submission on the cross. This is not a creator dominating his creation. It is a creator voluntarily succumbing to his creation at its very worst. Here's how Melito of Sardis, a second century bishop, put it. He who hung the earth hangs there. He who fixed the heavens is fixed there. He who made all things fast is made fast upon the tree. The master has been insulted. God has been murdered. Strange murder, strange crime. The master has been treated in unseemly fashion. His body naked and not even deemed worthy of a covering. Therefore the lights of heaven turned away and the day darkened that it might hide him who was stripped upon the cross. The word of God who spoke creation into existence, who made meat and dirt, is made meat and dirt. And the crucified Jesus, the God of glory, becomes a perversion. That's what Paul's getting at in Philippians 2 when he says Jesus was equal with God but didn't cling to that equality, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The king of time and space didn't just take the form of a slave, he died a slave's death. 
When Paul says Jesus emptied himself, he's not talking about the physical pain of the cross. He's talking about someone equal to God dying a death of utter submission. It's the shame of it. It's the shame of God becoming human garbage. And if you love Jesus, you instinctively recoil from that. Maybe this sermon is deeply offensive because you want to protect him. You want to defend him, his honor, his glory. Love of Jesus can make us make the cross all about noble, masculine suffering, like Mel Gibson dying at the end of Braveheart, right? We can handle Jesus being hurt for us. That just shows how tough he is. You can write songs about pain. You can't write songs about shame. Don't beautify the cross with words of eloquent wisdom, Scripture warns us, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. When we try to cover up what Jesus exposed for us, when we force on him the very dignity that he gave up, we dishonor his sacrifice. We make it nothing. Because it's human nature to reach up for God. But when Jesus came into the world, he didn't just skim the top for the cream of human experience. He went all the way down to the dregs, and that's where he died. And that's why the cross saves us. Because it shows us there is no limit to the reach of God's love. No point at which he will pull back from being with us and for us as a sacrifice freely offered. As the great theologian Gregory Nazianzen said, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. And the cross shows us there is no limit to what Jesus will assume, that is, bring into himself and heal. Literally nothing and no one that he disdains to heal. I know some of you are here today with shame, with guilt, with doubt, despair that God could only ever love your good bits. But which of our lows is lower than the cross? And some are here with pride, like, okay, look at my life, God, I've done all right, right? But which of our accomplishments mean anything in front of the cross? The God of glory made creation good. That's one of God's arms. God died in shame on the cross. That's the other arm. You tell me, what falls outside that embrace? At the cross, God grips the whole universe, good, bad, and ugly, and says, this is mine. This is the victory that Christ wins today over the devil and sin and death. Their power is broken. His love has conquered because they have nothing to threaten in the end anymore. Who is beyond his grasp? Who here is beyond the saving reach of the cross? Who out there is beyond the saving reach of the cross? No one. That's the work he knew he'd finished at the end. On the cross, we see a sovereignty so vast that it encompasses submission. And on the cross, we see a holiness so profound that it welcomes desecration. Scripture says the world did not know God through wisdom, so it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, that is the shame of the crucifixion, to save those who believe, to save those who look through the eyes of faith, who look and weep, to see in the obscenity of the cross the very love of God.